HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Oh, yeah. Well, what up, folks? What is up? It is 2017. Happy New Year. Glad to be back. Took a nice little break. Painted a bathroom. Cut down some trees. I'm all fired up. I'm ready to go. Um, So let's start with our first. Well, first, let me introduce my guest, although he won't be talking for a few minutes. But his name is Ted Genoways. Uh, He's one of my very favorite guests. You've heard him on this program at least a half a dozen times, probably, uh, whether it was for his incredible book, The Chain, about um, industrial pork uh, business or whether it was about the Corn Wars or any number of other topics that we have covered. He's a really terrific journalist and you'll hear from him soon. In the meantime, we have my favorite segment, Joys and Sorrows, um, peering into the abyss, (laughs) peering into the abyss. (laughs) Maybe no applause for that. (laughs) Thanks, Dave. Well, I don't know. I guess I, I mean, honestly, I still have not recovered and I don't think anybody else has either, at least in the coastal areas. Um, you know, even in the grocery store, I find myself striking up conversations with complete strangers about the abyss we are peering into. But anyway, one thing I can identify as joyful in that abyss is an awakened electorate ready to call legislators to account as uh, unfolded when the Republicans made a behind-the-scenes attempt to gut the Independent Ethics Oversight Office. Um, You know, just a harbinger of what's to come. It was unprecedented, unbelievable, and thanks to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who called their local representatives, uh, it was uh, squashed before it got out of the gate. So, um, that's just, you know, that's the level that we have to maintain. Like, not a single thing can get past. We all have to be paying attention now. It's so frightening and so humiliating that our government has come to this point. But there you go. 
Uh, Eric Holder, who is our former attorney general, I don't know if people remember him, but he preceded Loretta Lynch. Um, he was a terrific attorney general in some ways, although lots of people complained that he didn't prosecute the banks enough after the, the uh, crash. And there is uh, certainly some truth to that. But nevertheless, he's been a good guy. And he has now been retained by the state of California to stave off any legal threats that are posed by the Trump administration. So I have to think for a minute about what kind of legal threats that would have to do with um, permitting fracking, I suppose, Uh, you know, water rights, all kinds of uh, business, federal meddling in state business is what it sounds like to me is that they're worried about. And yet that is theoretically um, the antithesis of what Republican government is supposed to be about, which is all about states' rights. So over and over again, I think we're going to see these extraordinary um, contradictions in this administration between what we have traditionally believed to be a Republican tact uh, and what is the reality, which is the federal government meddling in states' rights. So stay tuned for that, because that's going to happen a lot. Uh, The Daily News, the New York Daily News reported that Trump rung in the new year with a convicted mob-affiliated felon named Joey No Socks Cinque, enough said, I think. Isn't there an old saying about how you are known as much by who you keep company with as who you are? I think so. Uh, Feel free to write into my show page to give me the correct wording for that phrase, but I know it exists. New York residents can rejoice in the fact that uh, Governor Cuomo seems to have reached an agreement with the operators of the Indian Point reactors, and they will be shut down by 2021, barring any disaster before that date. The reactors have shown to be in violation of numerous safety rules, and of course, they have been proven to have minimal security. So it's high time that those were shut down. 30 miles within Manhattan, that's way too close for comfort. Such a heavily populated area. I don't know why they ever built it there. Um, They were built in 1962. I looked it up because I remember going to a lot of nuclear protests when I was younger, you know, in my 20s, in my BAI days. And um, But I realized that those were Shoreham in... um, the Shoreham facility on Long Island, and then the the one up in New Hampshire, see something. I can't remember the name of it now, but I, I was very involved in anti-nuclear protests at the time. My, my views about nuclear energy have somewhat softened, but um, alas, we have not figured out how to dispose of the spent fuel. If we could only manage that, then probably nuclear would be a good um, alternative, but at the point we are at now? I don't think so. And finally, um, Nat Hentoff died. I don't know how many of you still ever uh, knew Nat Hentoff. I mean, not per- I didn't know him personally, but knew his column in the Village Voice, which ran for 50 years. Um, but he was a remarkable and contrary voice. And I remember being, you know, as a young person, when I read the Village Voice quite religiously, always sort of being outraged by Nat. I mean, a lot of times I would agree with his point of view or whatever, but a lot of times I didn't because his point of view was so, I guess, libertarian is the word. It was, you know, his idea was that you can't shut anyone's speech down just because you don't like the content of it. And and I must say that his railings about how the the left was just as bad as the right and trying to shut people down uh, is every bit as pertinent, if not more so today, than it was back 50 years ago, or actually more like 30 years ago when he was writing that. But anyway, he was a great guy, a very interesting man um, with a tremendous body of work behind him. 
And after he was laid off at the Village Voice, which I think happened in the late 90s, he said, this is a great quote, he vowed to keep, quote, putting on my skunk suit at other garden parties. (laughs) I just loved that. I mean, sometimes I feel like I put on my skunk suit every week when I come in here. (laughs) And I, you know, I I often talk call this program the doom and gloom hour, even though I'm I'm anything but a gloomy person, uh, as you probably have gathered. But um, nevertheless, I, I really enjoyed Hentoff. I appreciated him, uh, even if I didn't like what he said. And um, though I did stop reading The Voice in the 90s when it seemed kind of irrelevant to my life, I, I, I most certainly uh, wish uh, him uh, happy happy trails across the Rainbow Bridge. Um, so that's it for Joys and Sorrows today. We're going to take a short break uh, for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with the estimable Ted Genoways. We have an interesting discussion ahead of us, uh, so stay tuned. It's it's got, not going to be what you expect. I'm looking forward to it. So we'll be right back. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. I think I forgot to say that at the top of the show. I I, I don't think I I ever identified this podcast, but that's what it is. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. We are um, live from the back of Roberta's uh, in our frigid shipping containers. (laughs) I just took my coat off, though, but I I distinctly feel the chill. Anyway, um, we are going to have a a whale of a good time today. My guest is one of my very favorite interviews. His name is Ted Genoways. He is an editor-at-large at On Earth, the magazine of the Natural Resources Defense Fund. He has also contributed to a number of other magazines, such as The Atlantic, Bloomberg Business Week, Harper's, Mother Jones, The New Republic, and Outside. His book, The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food, was a James Beard Award winner. It should have won many more awards. And his forthcoming book, This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Farm, will published in September 2017 from Norton. Um, thanks so much for joining me today, Ted, especially since we didn't have a lot of time to kind of put this show together. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Katie. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, I, I'm not kidding when I say you're one of my favorite interviews, and I, I so admire your writing, and I'm so, I, you know, I just loved your book, The Chain. I can't wait to read this blessed earth. So um, congratulations on all of those accomplishments. Um, so um, we were, you know, what what spurred my interest was a, a Facebook post that you had up uh, about a sort of... Mm, 
Writers Conference, it seemed like, uh, that you're organizing, you and a bunch of other colleagues are organizing, are organizing at Denison University. And the, um, the, the, the catalyst, if I'm not mistaken, was an article entitled Dangerous Idiots, How the Liberal Media Elite Failed Working Class Americans. It was written by someone named Sarah Smarsh, who I guess is a friend and colleague of yours. Um, yeah. Tell us about this article and, and the conference. Give us, give us the thumbnail there. Sure. So, uh, as you say, this this whole gathering that's that's coming up in Ohio um, emerged uh, of all things out of a Facebook post where I was just calling on some some friends who are writers, reporters, um, but also people who tell stories in other media, the radio producers and documentary filmmakers, and saying, you know, that. That there was all this discussion of how the media writ large had kind of missed the story of what was happening in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. But many of us, of course, are planted right here and saw this coming very much. And um, the piece that you mentioned by Sarah Smarsh was published a month before Trump was elected, in which she was explaining to a large audience how as she saw it, the, the mass media, sort of the, the 24-hour news media, uh, were getting the stories wrong and um, not understanding um, who Trump supporters were and are, and also um, misrepresenting sort of what the concerns of the middle of the country have been. And so um, the conversation very quickly was, you know, it, if we live here and see these things on a daily basis and we're storytellers, um, what do we need to do differently? What are the stories that we need to tell? And how do we get those stories out better? Um, And not just to a national audience, but get them out to our local and regional audiences also in a way that makes people recognize that, that their stories are being heard and told and also gets those stories to people of influence, um, close to the ground where it can make the most difference. Mm. Um, And when I said, you know, we should try to get everybody together in a room, and I don't know where it would be or how we would do this, um, a group of enterprising uh, young guys in Ohio, um, Mike Crowley and Jack Schuler at Denison University, and, um, and a mutual friend, uh, Dave Lucas, all said, well, Let's do this in Ohio. Ohio is sort of the quintessential swing state and um, one of the states that was central to the, to the narrative of this election. Let's get everybody together um, at the university and spend a couple of days talking these things through. Mm-hmm. And it's really no more formal than that. I mean, we've got um, some people that we're asking to speak, but really the, the speaking is just a way of getting some conversations going, and, and our hope is that what this will really be is a couple of days of talking through ways that we can do things better um, and to also brainstorm some ideas of specific things that we can be doing, hopefully with some editors and funders in the room who will get excited about those same projects and that we'll be able to go away with with things to do and not just simply um, more concerns and more worries, but some actual action plans. Well, I, 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 
Sorry, Ted. <laughs> Too many thoughts uh, crowding uh, in, into my brain at once. Um, <laughs> it happens. I don't know. It's just yeah, I'm sure it happens to you. Um, you know, I I read that article, uh, which is sort of the catalyst, and and um, and. I, I, my first question is: Is that in a in a in a profit driven media, uh, how do you get editors to agree to publish stories that are not necessarily going to be ratings magnets? You know what I mean? Right. Like I mean, right away, right out of the gate, I'd be, you know, curious to see what kinds of editors show up, um, what kinds of clout they have in terms of steering their. Uh, own media, you know, machine, and and how they can attract the uh, ever present advertiser in the wake of of selling a story that isn't necessarily what advertisers want to hear or what other people want to hear. I don't know. I mean, I, I see that as a stumbling block right in and of itself. H- how do you guys think you're going to get past that? Well, I I think first of all that that it's not just those of us who are storytellers that are recognizing that that we may not have been doing the most effective job over mm-hmm. the recent years. I, I, I've heard a lot from editors who mm-hmm. are suddenly saying, um, you know, can you explain to me what's going on, um, whether it's here in my home state of Nebraska, um, which has some intensely complex politics and mm-hmm. regional divides, um, but also, you know, neighboring states, and and I think that there's a there's a growing sense that um, that the the media has kind of moved out of the uh, of the middle of the country, and it's this is all. I mean, the, the reasons for this are are plain to anyone who's in the media. There's you know was a massive media con- contraction, right? Consolidation, um, as, yeah. You know, and and that really was exacerbated during the the last recession. And Sarah Kenzior has written very lucidly about you know the ways in which the the positions that existed in the reporting uh, bureaus that existed in the middle of the country were really reduced during the recession. And to the extent that that the jobs have been added back, they've tended to be added back on the coasts and to be added back. Um, in new media um, rather than being added back in sort of traditional beat reporting roles. And so what we've seen in the last 10 years is is really a shift away from um, this region, the central part of the, of the country. And, you know, the, the media has skewed younger and skewed more to the coasts. But I think there's a recognition. I mean, these are these are not bad people. They're not, and they're certainly not stupid people. I mean, these are folks who realize that they um, have been missing some key parts and are eager to make those corrections. And I think um, right now there's there's a recognition that that there need to be some changes made. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, talk, in my opinion, the media failed this country so appallingly during this last election cycle that I, I scarcely even know where to place my rage. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I do have to say, though, I mean, I, I, I've i come to realize, and it, and it was really only this election cycle that it dawned on me, that, that for many people, 
um, when they talk about the media, they're really talking about some mix of what they see on 24-hour TV news, what they hear on the radio, which is often kind of its own, you know, rant and rage-filled um, medium, and then <laughs> what they're getting shared uh, into their Facebook feeds. And so I think one of the, the, the questions for some of us who are doing, you know, magazine reporting and newspaper reporting um, is not simply how do we tell these stories, because I think, you know, you've seen some appropriate re- defensiveness out of big newspapers and magazines saying we did cover these stories, that just no one was paying attention to them. Um, but I don't think that that gets anybody off the hook. I mean, it's, no. it's not really publishing until you've the stories that you think are important are part of the conversation, and that's that's the whole process. And so, you know, some of this is also trying to figure out how to cut through some of the noise. Um, and And, you know, the places that have done good reporting have also been responsible for generating some of that noise. Yeah, I, you know, yes, they have. And I mean, I'm looking squarely at the New York Times, for example, uh, which uh, published story after story after story about the freaking emails and the freaking Benghazi Mm -hmm. and failed to publish story after story after story about the perfidies of the Trump empire. And uh, I think that was reflected in pretty much every major newspaper across the country. And I consider that an egregious uh, failure uh, to do your job as a journalist. And, you know, I, I don't think there's any way to let them off of the hook of that. I really don't. And uh, I just I found it absolutely unforgivable. But that's I just think, me. I think that's especially true when you look at the constituencies that, that and the kind of uh, coalition that Trump was building. Because while they have a kind of emotional um, commonality, um, I, I think that there are major ways in which the, the, some of the promises that Trump made on the campaign trail simply don't parse. And mm-hmm. that, that there's no way that you can fully reconcile the promises that he made to the Rust Belt um, with the promises that he made to the Corn Belt, and that it requires somebody who has some knowledge of these industries and these areas and the workforces for these industries to, to look at these things and say, actually, in a lot of ways, the, the globalism that, that agriculture relies on is the same globalism that has undercut manufacturing, um, that that's a subject for reporting and it should really be explored. And to, to gloss over those issues and to focus so much on, you know, what are Trump voters so angry about or whatever, at the same time, as you say, that, that they're, they were focused a great deal on sideshows, um, really meant that, that the things that were most important to people and driving people in their voting um, never became a, a part of the conversation. Right. Absolutely. That's completely 100% accurate, in my opinion. Um, but let's let's move on to from pointing the finger at the media. Sure. And um, <laughs> point the finger at the media. So, um, <laughs> I mean, the media pointed the finger at the Midwest, the Rust and Farm Belts, as key in electing Trump. Mm-hmm. 
But according to uh, your friend's article in The Guardian, um, the media is wrong and that it wasn't those constituencies. And and yet that has been the narrative. So what what did what did they miss or misinterpret uh, when they were, you know, ineffectually reporting on who actually voted for Trump. And, of course, we all know he lost by three million popular votes. But, you know, that's beside right. Well, I think that's I think that's actually an important place to start, because, I mean, the the things that that made me so impressed by the by the piece that Sarah Marsh wrote for The Guardian was this this basically a sort of central question of saying, why are we choosing to vilify um, groups that that uh, that we regard as you know sort of the the ignorant Trump supporters when the the patterns for many of the states where he had support um, follow the patterns that that they've been following for for many many years you know I, sitting here in Nebraska. You know, the last time that Nebraska voted for a Democrat for president was was <laughs> LBJ, yeah. and so you know it is. On the one hand, it's accurate to say that that there is this kind of core constituency that will vote for anyone if they are a Republican, um, but you know that diehard. Republican constituency in Nebraska, in some ways, is no different than the diehard Democratic constituencies in places like, you know, California or New York. Mm-hmm. And so, to, to my mind, and some of what I heard Sarah saying was, you know, that there needed to be more conversation about the places where things were shifting. You know, what what was happening in the place places that had been Democratic strongholds that for a generation have been shifting in the direction of the Republican Party. And when you look at that, that group, it tends to be the working class. And in, in large part, that shift has to do with the fact that, that the Democrats have tended to take that group for granted and haven't done much uh, for them once they've gotten elected with their support. And, of course, what eventually happens is that a group of people who are repeatedly, um, you know, exploited in that way, frankly, um, and that eventually you say, well, what happens if we vote the other direction? And I think in some ways it is happenstance that it it was Trump. Um, In some ways, Trump was exactly the, the perfect person um, you know the the candidate who was willing to go out and say, as he did explicitly, "What do you have to lose?" Yeah, um, a message that that resonated just enough um, that that it got him the whatever it was sixty seventy thousand votes um, in in those swing states mm. to, to turn um, those Rust Belt states in his favor. Um, so, but you know, the, the, to me, the the key issue is that that these things are hugely complex and that each place is its own story and its own narrative of what happened. Um, Wisconsin is not the same as Michigan. Right. Um, and it's not the same as Ohio and it's not the same as Pennsylvania. And what really needs to be happening is the people who are in those places and understand the, the particularities of those places um, are telling the stories in a way that is 
specific and local rather than than people who are coming in who don't really know the place and therefore try to make it conform to a narrative that they've already created in their own mind. Yeah. And and that I mean the thing that with Sarah's piece that that made me sort of take to Facebook and say this is what we need was there, there's a, a a point in that where she's taking David Brooks to task yeah. for for you know the way that he writes about seeing this Kentucky metal worker who's been laid off and on his last day at work and mm-hmm. Brooks looking at this person as he's being cheered by his coworkers um has sort of the audacity to say that these are his exact words that the that the, the man radiated the res, the residual sadness of the lonely heart <laughs> I know I couldn't believe that <laughs> and which, which is to absolutely you know turn this person into yeah. a stereotype a stock figure and a victim and, yeah and Sarah to her great credit said you know that this that you know how dare you come in after decades of ignoring exactly these kinds of people and then try to use them as a prop in in a piece that you're writing where you're trying to sort of tug at the heartstrings right and and you know the line of hers that i absolutely loved was she said you know we don't need their analysis and we sure don't need their tears what we need is to have our stories told and that's that's what I think is at the center of of kind of what's needed and what we're trying to figure out how to do. I understand that, but I, I I'm going to go back to the beginning of your comment there and say that um, I would disagree that the Democrats, although they may not pay so much lip service to the constituencies that they feel. Uh, or they can, quote unquote, take for granted. I mean, things like trying to push uh, an increase in minimum wage or, you know, the Affordable Care Act, those are pointed directly at middle and lower middle class people. And, you know, there are other initiatives like that. Um, All of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, the, you know, the school nutrition programs, these are all directed at the constituencies that you are suggesting are ignored by uh, Democratic legislators. And I, I have to disagree with that because I think that's a very unfair characterization. They may not, um, you know, maybe they're not giving them some particular type of, <laughs> I don't know, hand-holding or something. But <laughs> Like the fact is, is that yeah. this, this entire uh, Obama administration has been all about helping the middle class. And, you know, with signature uh, legislation, which has been immensely helpful, whether or not one wants to acknowledge it. And um, and so I, I, I'm not buying into that that particular part of the narrative. The fact that we don't tell the stories of each and every, um, you know, sort of de- uh, regional community in this country. I agree. That is all part of the consolidation of media and the fact that we've lost so many uh, radio stations, so many newspapers and the like uh, to, you know, things like Cox Communications or, or you know, some of the other big media conglomerates. I mean, but I, I just don't I'm not going to I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go with her on that one or I'm not going to go with you guys on that. I, I think that there's there's a lot more to this story. And I think. Um, just to go back to something that I wanted to address at the beginning, um, part of what really struck me about, um, okay, perhaps an unfair characterization of the average Trump voter, and, and, and Lord knows one shouldn't make generalizations. I mean, uh, I know that there are plenty of wealthy people who voted for him on the basis yeah. of tax cuts for the wealthy and, you know, basic basic hostility towards, you know, what they perceive as lower classes. 
But um, but there is a very large uneducated, or should I say, more importantly, anti-intellectual um, con- group in this country. In other words, and I've been saying this since I was a teenager, really, is that people expect to, they, they, they want to be successful, but they don't want to do the work, the intellectual work that goes into becoming successful. And so in the end, what we end up doing is praising things like uh, sports players, uh, rock stars, Hollywood figures, like those have become our, you know, quote unquote, elite in a way, or, or sort of our superior, I don't know how to describe them. But but my point is, is that there is this broad swath of anti-intellectualism as if if gaining an education uh, then makes you somehow sort of an elite uh, nattering nabob, you know, and, and, right. and I feel like that was really at the root of why people could buy into the Trump narrative. I, I, I feel like that was really that the, the part that has really failed to be explored by the media and anybody else is the lack of education, like the the poor educational standards that we have allowed to evolve or rather devolve in this country where we once had the greatest public school system in the world probably it's now ranked you know i don't know in the teens right so where are you guys going to address that in this con like isn't that part of this story also it's it like- certainly is i mean and and for me um you know i think it it's it, i agree with you that it's the it's the root of all of this i mean i think that you know, we've seen a generation-long campaign against public education. Yeah. And not just the public schools, um, though they certainly were first, but, but also public universities and um, just, you know, looking at every possible way of, of defunding um, schools, of discouraging people who are talented educators from going into a system that, that is straightjacketing and... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I have a kid in public school right now, and I can tell you that that probably twenty percent of of his school year is spent um, in testing. Oh yeah, and and it's it's hard for me to believe that all of that testing is is better than if they spent an extra day a week teaching them something. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. And and I think that I you know I think all of that has been by design, um, because, you know, the thing that gets eroded, of course, is, is, your, is your critical faculties, your ability to tell um, a, a good argument from a poor one, uh, real news from fake news, um, and, and ultimately your ability, it, it sort of decreases your ability to tell when you're getting a good deal and when you're getting a raw deal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, Obviously, that that benefits the people who are already most in power and and have the most wealth and influence. And I'm I'm with you up to a up to a certain point. And that's the, the, the only place that that I diverge from from what you said is I I do think that some of of the decreased interest in education. Um, or effort put into education um, arises from a, an accurate feeling that an education doesn't do for you what it used to. Mm. And I think that that there is that that may be the most insidious part of all. That that once you get people to think that that all that an education is is either work training or wasted time, um, of course they're not pursuing education. 
And so the, the real question is, you know, in education, how, how do we make people understand that this is something that is central to citizenship and to mm-hmm. every phase of their life, and that not only will it make them more sort of economically mobile, um, but I, it, it will enrich their lives. I mean, it's, yes. it, there's, there's an intellectual life that, that, um, that, you know, I think certainly for me uh, makes all of this worthwhile, and I, I don't think I'm alone. And I, I, I think the, that a lot of people have been talked out of that intellectual life um, by people who have made them believe that, that it is that it's not real, it's not valuable, that it is simply something that that is something that belongs to other people that they intend to lord over them and to and to make them feel stupid because they don't have it. Well, that I mean that that is sort of what I was getting at, which is that I feel like the the, the culture of this country is essentially anti-intellectual. That, you know, because uh, someone who has an education is immediately perceived to be an egghead um, that they are that they are going to feel that they are morally or culturally superior to other people who don't have an education. There's a really, I think, genuinely a sense of of vilifying uh, people who are uh, pursue higher learning, and and I think that that is a cultural deficit in the United States that did not used to exist here. And um, yeah. I don't know what the root causes of that are. I'm not I'm not enough of a sociologist to understand what brought that about, or but it does seem to me like. I don't know. When do you think it started, Ted? You're a lot younger than I am, but um, well, I, like the '60s know, was that it? I don't know. I mean, I felt like we still valued thinking in the '60s. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I would, you know, I pin it on the Reagan era. Um, ah, but, my favorite, great. You know, yeah. but but I, you know, part of that is that I I really feel that that you know the so-called Reagan Democrats. I mean. Uh, circling back to something that you had said, I mean, I I do think that that the Democrats did and have done a a poor job of kind of bringing the unions along. Oh yeah, um, and and some of that is is all connected. That uh, that Reagan managed to simultaneously break the unions yep. and uh, and win over the people who were getting a bad deal and and maybe most insidious um and you know i say this as someone whose entire you know comfortable life rests on generations of access to public education um you know the thing that i think was worst of all is that reagan really started that push for you know you don't need to know more you don't you don't need um, that. This is that this is trying to make you feel inadequate instead of uh, an education that's trying to lift you up. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm always so happy to, I, to bash Reagan. I think he was the worst thing that ever happened to this country, if not the world. I mean. <laughs> I really do. I mean, no, but the <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I just gave a talk about food policy to this group of you know very well educated political activists out in Long Island, little grassroots group, and um, 
you know, it really did start with Reagan and Thatcher. You know, the whole the trickle down thing that the stupid yep. Republicans continue to push, even though it has been proven over and over again to fail. Most recently, of course, with with the terrible example of Kansas, the state of Kansas. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and then the breaking up of the unions, the 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 sending uh, jobs overseas. All of that stuff began with Reagan. You know, yep. and yet uh, somehow he is St. Ronnie, and I, I just don't get it. But I want to – unfortunately, we've wasted so much time. We haven't had a chance to talk about your book or a couple of the more interesting things that I wanted to bring up. Um, for instance, what when you were writing your book um, about uh, 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 this blessed earth, A Year in the Life of an American Farm, I mean, to go back to what we were talking about, the media and the narratives and the regional narratives and so on – what did you feel like were the key issues within the farming communities um, that need to be understood better by the nation at large and by legislators especially? Like what what were the glaring holes uh, that you found in terms of covering your American family farm um, that the rest of the country needs to understand? Yeah. Well, I mean, the very first thing is I don't, I don't think Americans have any idea how much of our economy is dependent on commodity grains. Agreed. Um, which is one of those things that, uh, you know, it seems, I mean, when you were talking about how do you get editors on the coast interested in something, I, you know, I can't think of a harder sell than saying mm-hmm. to a New York editor, you know, I want to explain to people how important soybeans are. Um, <laughs> but... You know what? They're really, really important. They are absolutely. Um, and and you know, it's it's astonishing how um, corn and soybeans are are a, a, you know a cornerstone of the ag economy, but also the the you know our larger economy. They they yep. dictate a great deal about the way our our trade agreements are carried out. We use those grains as a way of exerting leverage, especially in places like China. And Russia has done a great deal to try to pull back from American commodities, uh, those grains, in order to establish more independence. And it's uh, it's something that, that no one ever talks about in terms of of international policy and and our domestic yeah. economy. But you know, there are there are economists in in deep in the literature these days talking about the fact, arguing that that corn and soybeans now are are more of a, a you know a key economic indicator than petroleum is. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I don't think the average American has any idea that that's the case. Um, that that what farmers are growing is as much. A, an instrument of foreign policy and national economic support as it is a food source. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, I mean, and it's not just a food source, but also a, a bioenergy source. Absolutely. And the impact of, of using it as a, as, a, as a fuel additive and how that has driven, you know, ups and downs in prices in virtually every other food stuff that we consume. So it's, yeah, no, people really really do not get the the importance of those crops and the fact that we don't have a food policy right. in this country. Um, so when you were, when you talk to farmers, like, so connect that, connect the fact right. that those two commodity grains are, are, are crops, uh, 
how they drive what happens in rural communities and what, you know, sort of what what is it that we're missing? What is it the Americans need to know more about in terms of understanding how those two crops have an impact on rural communities across the country, especially in places like Iowa, Nebraska, and so on? Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing is that um, because of this this food movement that's that's emerged in you know the last decade or so i kind of pinned the beginning of it with with fast food nation and the omnivores dilemma yes um as as a kind of um urban and suburban uh middle class reader came to understand um agriculture like row crop agriculture and uh livestock agriculture through a couple of very good books, um, but books that that took a a critical view of our current agricultural system in a way that agribusiness has been very good at convincing farmers is really an attack on them. Yeah, and and so the average farmer feels besieged right now. Feels that mm-hmm. that they are raising the crops. That feed the world. That's one narrative that that they kind of um, oh, they really very cling much to that. Hew to yeah. and cling to. Um, but they also, you know, recognize the importance of of what they're doing to the economy, and and it is absolutely legitimately so. Whether we like the system as it exists or not, um, radical change to it uh, would would be devastating to our economy and to our position absolutely. in the world. And farmers, you know, I think there's this view that farmers are not very sophisticated. I can't imagine anything being farther from the truth. I, I agree with you completely. It's a very complex business, farming. It's, it's incredibly it is, complex. You, you have to be so it, it, good at so many different things. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a moment toward the, the end of the first section of the, of the book that, uh, that, by the way, I... I Handed the revised version in this morning, so oh, congratulations. I'm, um, <laughs> but but there's a moment w- where I was with this family and everything about the the way that they had been working that day, harvesting soybeans, was determined by what was happening with commodities prices. Mm-hmm. They were constantly on the phone, constantly checking with the a whole series of. Uh, of the, the the local grain elevators, the the co-ops, to to see, uh, you know, who was staying open late, what the current prices were at the different places, what the projection wow. was for the next day, working late um, to to deal with the realities of of the markets, um, and in the midst of that, had an equipment breakdown that that required them to. I mean, they went to the shop. Got a blowtorch and whatever was on hand, and fixed, you know, a half million dollar harvester to get it up and running again. Yeah. And you know, to me, to to be sophisticated enough in one way that you're you're essentially a commodities trader. Yep. And sophisticated enough in an, in another way that you are a mechanic on intensely complex machinery. <laughs> the 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 skill set is just off the charts. It is. It really and, is. And so the idea that that these folks are somehow dupes of a of a complex system and rubes that don't realize how they're being exploited is completely false. 
in, if anything, they're painfully aware of the shortcomings of the system, yeah. of the ways in which they are hemmed in by the system. But having somebody come in and say, this system is screwed up and point the finger at them is not very helpful. And it puts them on the defensive. And I think that, that very often they feel exactly as we're talking about, that, that you know, people who, um, who understand farming from a, a kind of intellectual and suburban perspective have no ideas of the complexities and the pressures of, of the businesses that they're running. I often think that farming, the farming community, is sort of similar to the military in the sense that um, I don't know if you've ever spent a lot of time around military families, but that that community is very close because they don't feel that civilians understand what they do, which is by and large right. very true. And I think that the same applies to farming, that people simply do not grasp the complexity of their tasks um, and how hard it is to, you know, sort of duck and 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 avoid blows, whether they be from commodity pricing gone awry or whether they be from some great national weather emergency or, you know what I mean? It's like there are so many ways in which they can be screwed, um, not the least of which is the system that we have in place now, which is equivalent to basically no system. So there are really very few protections for farmers. But um, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up pretty soon. But I had a couple more questions for you. Sure. Um, uh, I wanted to, since we've basically gone way far away from this outline (laughs) often a good thing um but i wanted to say that because most of my um most of my listeners are very focused on food issues and policy i mean you have really you have explored the depths of the meat industry yeah and now you've explored the depths of essentially what I understand. I mean, what you're saying now, right now tells me that what you've been looking at uh, in terms of American farming is not uh, niche farmers or row crop farmers, but the guys who are farming the millions and millions of acres devoted to these you know, various commodities, whether it's soy, corn, rice, sugar beets, cotton. I mean, I think those are the yeah. five big ones, right? Um, you know, what, what would you say would be a key starting point um, when it comes to revising a food system or revising food policy so that it so that farmers like the ones you're describing are are not penalized um, f- sort of for doing their jobs you know what I mean like right. I think you know the way the subsidy system works is is it seems to be very skewed um, the way people I mean you've just talked about how they are vilified in the press in the progressive food movement, which I think is also very true and very unfair what 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 would you say would help them the most in terms of legislative or farm bill fix what right we, yeah, well i mean the the first thing I, I think there was a huge step forward just recently with with um, the gypsa rule so called the uh-huh. Um, that was passed by the USDA, which we'll see if it survives a month. Um, mm-hmm. But, but it basically, was at long last a rule that that establishes some fair guidelines for contract uh, livestock growers. Yeah. And um, as any readers of Chris Leonard's book, The Meat Racket, would know, uh, you know, the the poultry growers in particular have been subject to absolutely terrible lopsided contracts and 
um, pork has been going more and more in oh, that definitely. direction. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, on the livestock side, I think greater autonomy um, would be hugely helpful. Just you know, for farmers not to get locked into long-term contracts, for there to be some government protections that say, mm-hmm. look, we we want to have a system that can be a little bit more flexible and a little more nimble and that does rely on the, the expertise and intelligence of the growers to know what they want to do um, so that they don't get two years into a contract that is no good for them and are stuck in it um, for, the, for uh, you know, the rest of a decade, um, often, you know, leading to, to financial problems along the oh, way. Yeah. Um, and so, and and you know the the, the row crop stuff, I, you know, it, to me is much more complex, um, especially where the commodity crops are concerned, because you know we have we you know for, for all the rhetoric on those crops, we really raise them as a bargaining chip for foreign policy. Mm. So. You know, one of the things that I would encourage the people who are critical of, you know, this this uh, sort of constantly rotating, um, you know, they're not exactly a monoculture, but 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 corn and and soybeans that go back and forth as as our key grains. Um, it to understand that it's not as simple as saying, you know, we should diversify. Um, because of course we should, and I don't think you could find a single farmer who would disagree with that. Right. But when you have a system where, um, especially as it was a few years ago, where corn was through the roof um, in terms of prices, and where your your insurance payments are are dependent on what part you can you can recoup in case of loss uh your subsidies are calculated in part by the the value of your land and what the the production is um from that land you don't really have any choice as a business other than to grow the crops that are most lucrative yeah and at the time uh when the renewable fuel standard was the way it was i mean this was all being grown to be turned into ethanol. Yeah. And um, up until the prices got so high that, that the ethanol producers couldn't really afford it either. <laughs> um, but now we're in a situation where the, the, the real farm income uh, for 2017 looks like it's going to be half of what it was in 2013. Jesus. And people are taking out big loans to cover the gap. Hmm. They're tightening their belts so that they don't spend, but that means that there's a ripple effect yeah. where if you're not buying equipment, then there there's no need for people to work at the dealership. There's no need for people to be manufacturing the equipment. Sure. And there is, and of course, what also happens is that the banks get nervous and say, we want you to reduce your number of acres so that you're risk is is more spread out and a bunch of of forced sales like that start to bring down the price of farmland and start to reduce the value of collateral 
And if you're not careful, you wind up in a situation like what happened in the 1980s with the farm crisis. Under the Reagan administration. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. we have to leave it there because um, we're way past time. But um, okay. <laughs> I'm glad we could. I'm glad we could end on a Reagan note. Um, thank you so much, Ted, for this. Thank you. Kate. This was a really interesting chat, as I expected it would be, and um, to be continued. I hope. Um, yeah. Again, people look for um, look for. You're going to excerpt that book, right? I hope so. Yes, I've got something coming up. There's a part of the book that's that's set to appear in Harper's soon. Excellent. So um, I'll try to let me know when that is, and I'll try to make an announcement on the air. Um, so I, you know, I want everybody to buy that book, just as I want them all to buy mine. And I hope you'll do the same. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, and we will tweet, and you can look for Ted Genoway's uh, work on his website, which is Ted. Genoways.com. <laughs> and if you haven't read The Chain, read it. Thanks, Ted. We'll see you next Thank time. You. And thanks to my sponsor, New York State Grown and Certified. And um, Happy New Year, everybody. It's good to be back. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.